Have you ever uh, had a <clears throat> seemingly obscure conversation with someone only to walk away from the conversation realizing that the person you were talking to said something quite profound? Well, that happened to me a number of years ago. The music director of our church was trying to persuade me for some reason that we needed a new public address system. And in his spiel, he said something that actually stunned me. As soon as it came out of his mouth, I thought, wow, that's significant. And I think that's very, very biblical. And so I uh, went home, and over the next few days, I opened my Bible, and I began studying and the more I studied, the more I realized what he said was very profound. What did he say? His exact words were this. If we Christians are in any business at all, we're in the communication business. I mean, think about it, right? Take the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach is a communication word. Teaching them to observe all things that I command you. Take the means whereby we grow, speaking the truth in love. We grow up into him. I actually started counting in the New Testament the different injunctions, different commands, if you please, that we are uh, exhorted to follow when it comes to communication. And I found essentially a hundred hundred things the Bible says we are to do in our communication, New Testament. hundred things we're to do or not do. That's just the New Testament. It's not the Old Testament. It's not the principles from the book of Proverbs. It's not all of the examples of good and bad communication that we see in the Bible. There have got to be hundreds of verses in the Bible about communication. And that's why... I agree that if we're in any business at all, it's the communication business. We ought to be amongst the world's greatest communicators because the Bible says so much about communication. Solomon wrote many proverbs about communication, right? There's he who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. My favorite one is in 1821. Death and life, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it, those who love the power of the tongue, will eat of the fruit of the power of the tongue. Pretty significant. So with your tongue, you can do a lot of good. With your tongue, you can do a lot of damage. You can build people up. You can hurt people. The Bible talks about being able to eat of the fruit of your, of your labor and uh, enjoy the fruit of your words, the fruit of your mouth. And so sometimes when we use our words to minister to other people, there's a sense of fulfillment and joy that we have, right? Take my job, for example, as a biblical counselor. I have the joy of regularly seeing people's lives changed sometimes radically changed. From a human perspective, I sit in my office and I do something, and as a result of that, humanly speaking, 
people's lives are changed. Now, of course, I don't produce the change. The Holy Spirit produces the change, right? But it's not my words that are really doing the job. I am listening and I'm talking. But when I'm talking, when I'm listening, first of all, I'm trying to diagnose the problem that people come in with, not in words that man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, interpreting spiritual problems, in my case, with spiritual terminology. But then I open the Bible, once I've diagnosed the problem biblically, and I unpack the scriptures for people. And somehow, the Holy Spirit takes the words that I use, really His words, that are explained and applied to their life, mixes it with faith in the life of my counselees, and they get transformed into the image of Christ. And marriages are saved, and people are saved, and people deal with problems that they've struggled with for years. But what is it that I do? Humanly speaking, I communicate. This is a big deal. Have you... Ever stop to consider that if we're not for the Bible, if we're not for this book, which we call special, what, revelation, we would know how to have a relationship with God. We would know a few things through general revelation. Revelation means to pull the curtain back, right? And so through general revelation, God pulls the curtain back a little bit. We know a few things. We know some things about his eternal power and godhood. We know we're in a lot of trouble with him, but we don't know how to be saved. We don't know how to please God, right? It took special revelation where he pulled the curtain back and revealed to us who he is for us to have a relationship with him. And so here's the point. Whether it's a husband or wife, which of course is the most intimate of interpersonal relationships, or it's parent and child, Revelation is a prerequisite to having a relationship. If you, and the closer you are, the more you have to pull the curtain back and reveal yourself to each other. To the extent that you pull the curtain back and reveal yourself to your spouse, to that, expect, to that degree you'll experience the one flesh intimacy that the Bible talks about. To the extent that parents reveal themselves to their kids and kids reveal themselves to their parents, they'll have a close, tight-knit relationship. And so revealing your heart to another person is key. It's essential. It's vital if you want to have a close relationship. And so young people, you know, you better get used to doing it now and probably with your parents because they're probably the closest people in your life. Because if you don't learn how to pull the curtain back and start revealing who you are to the people that God's put in your life now, you may have a hard time pulling the curtain back and revealing yourself to your spouse down the road. Now, this kind of goes contrary to culture, but God wants us to communicate, and especially men. I mean, do you ever stop to think, why is it that God wants men instead of women to be pastors? Oh, men don't communicate. Really? Well, then why are men supposed to be teachers? Why are men supposed to be shepherds if we're, if we're such, you know... If we're so unable to communicate, don't buy that lie. It's masculine to communicate. It's masculine to take the initiative. And sometimes you have to take the initiative as a man to solve a conflict, to maybe pick a fight, if you please, with your wife 
or one of your kids because the Bible calls you to initiate a course of action that's confrontational and it may not go as you hope it will. But the responsibility to take the initiative is on you. Now, that's not that women can't take initiative and men don't respond. But biblically, God made Adam to be the initiator and Eve to be the responder. You know, we talk about being one flesh. So when you become a Christian, you're sanctified positionally. In the law books of heaven, you're set apart. But then there's something called progressive sanctification. You've got to work every day. You've got to collaborate with the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus every single day. When you get married, in the law books of heaven, you and your spouse are one flesh. But every day you've got to work at developing that one flesh intimacy in a practical way. And that takes pulling the curtain back and revealing yourself to the other person. I told you that, uh, told you I think on Friday that I have these swivel chairs in my office and I, I really like to have my people talk to each other, whether it's husband, wife, or parent, child, or whoever. And so years ago, Harvey and Priscilla were in my office uh, trying to communicate and Priscilla said something um, very harsh, very disrespectful, very ungodly to her husband, to Harvey. And uh, I remember saying to her, whoa, Priscilla, whoa is probably the most important word in counseling, right? I said, uh, Priscilla, the way you worded that is really not in keeping with the respect and honor that the Bible says that a wife should have towards her husband. Probably, uh, additionally, it probably violated half a dozen other uh, principles and directives of Scripture. I said, can you try that again in a more gracious way? And um, she struggled to do it. I said, okay, here, try it this way. So I took the essence of what she said, and I put the words in her mouth, as I'm prone to do, and I said, here, try it this way, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so she's facing Harvey, and she opens her mouth, and nothing comes out. It's kind of like, and her tongue is sort of, you know, flopping between her upper and lower set of teeth, but nothing is coming out. So I said, come on, try it. This is what happened next. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, why is that so hard for me to say? I said, Priscilla, what I asked you to say is very gracious and very humble. And uh, apparently you don't have enough grace and humility in your heart to be able to utter those words without choking on them. See, the Bible makes a distinction. Yeah, this stuff is in keeping your cool. The Bible makes um, a distinction or gives us this picture about uh, the heart. The reservoir part of the picture, we can use this if we want to, the reservoir part of the bottle is analogous to our heart, right? The spout of the pitcher, the neck of the bottle is analogous to our mouth and our tongue and our lips. In fact, whenever you see the word heart in the Bible, let me get this out of here so it doesn't irritate you. When you see the word heart in the Bible, it is invariably juxtaposed to something on the outer man. It's the heart versus the mouth, the heart versus the lips, the, the heart versus the tongue. 
as we'll see in a little bit, the heart versus the face, the countenance, the heart versus the hands, the heart versus the feet. It's the inner man versus the outer man. So basically, right? Well, actually, let me, let me make the point from Scripture here. So look at this, okay? Well, first of all, you know what Jesus said, right? A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is evil. For from the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks, right? Now watch this. So here you have Proverbs 15. There are two verses in Proverbs 15 that really set this picture up. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Right? So, right now there's water in the bottle. If I took the top off and poured it out, what would pour through the neck? What would come out of the bottle? If there were tea in the bottle, what would come out the neck of the, mouth of the bottle? If there were gasoline, what would come out? So the bottom line is what's in our heart sooner or later is going to come out of our mouth. Now, what's the point of this? The point is I can teach you all of this really cool, really great, state-of-the-art, biblical communication stuff and biblical conflict resolution stuff, and it's not going to do you any good if you don't allow the Lord to deal with the stuff that's in your heart. That's why in conflict resolution we started with those four qualities, You've got to be willing to let God deal with the stuff that's in your heart first if you want to be a good communicator. To try to learn everything the Bible has to say, a fraction of what the Bible has to say about communication, without your first being willing to deal with the stuff in your heart, is like trying to build a skyscraper on a place where there's no foundation. The project is doomed to fail. So that's the first principle. You've got to deal with what's in your heart if you want to be a good communicator. You can't expect to speak that which is good if there's evil in your heart. Jesus asked the question, how can you being evil speak what is good? The only way is to have your heart cleansed through putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this must be followed by cooperating with but the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You've got to collaborate. You've got to work with the Spirit to be more like Christ if you want your heart to change and if you want ultimately your words. James says the tongue no man can tame. What's that about? Why is that? Why can't you tame the tongue? Because the tongue is only a muscle that's told to do what it does by the heart. And a heart that's out of control cannot tame the tongue. Now, when we talk about communication and learning how to communicate effectively, both for ourselves and when it comes to training others, especially our children, our teenagers, how to communicate, we've got to remember that words are important. Words arguably are the most important part of our community. As I'm standing here communicating with you, I'm communicating with my words. And I'm also communicating with other things. There's the inflection in my voice. There's my body language, my posture, my facial expressions, my eye contact. So there's other things that we have to consider 
But the Bible places the emphasis on the words. With your words, you'll be justified. With your words, you'll be condemned. We will give an account for every idle word that we say. So as Christians, we have to choose our words carefully, right? It's very, very important. But there are other things that the Bible says are a part of our communication, and we should take heed to them as well. For example, the tone in our voice. The tone in our voice communicates a lot. What, what are some of the things that the tone in our voice communicates? Some of the, some of the bad things. Frustration. Anger. Sarcasm. Really, you know, and you talk about kids. I mean, guys, you know, when you're disrespectful to your parents, you know, it's usually not the words. It's the tone in the voice behind the words. The words, if the tone were right, wouldn't be so bad. But it's the tone in your voice, right? The sarcasm, the biting sarcasm that really makes it disrespectful. Well, the Bible has a lot to say, especially in the book of Proverbs, about um, our communication. And at least in the English language, it has to do with the tone of our voice. For example, the Bible says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stir up anger. A gentle tongue breaks the bone. In um, one of the pastoral epistles, he says, the Cretans are always lazy gluttons, liars, liars, lazy gluttons, and something else. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Fierce words. Sweetness of the lips increases persuasiveness. The Bible talks about those whose speech is gracious. Let your communication always be with grace, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Every man means believer and non-believer. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of you. Here are some of those hundred verses, right? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And several verses in Proverbs talk about that. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. The Bible talks about uh, the rich answering roughly. Uh, um, the poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Okay, so now these words, at least in English, these concepts are largely communicated by the tone in our voice. Good things can be communicated with the tone of voice as well as bad things. Guy comes home from work, has dinner. His wife says to him, honey, would you like another helping of meatloaf or fried rice or where are we going tomorrow for dinner? Did you figure it out yet? Okay. <clears throat> Looking forward to some Seattle cuisine. So he says to her in a very pleasant tone of voice, no, thank you. As if to say, no, I've had plenty. Um, I, I couldn't touch another bite, but it was delicious in a pleasant tone of voice. Or he says, no, thank you. As if to say, I about gag trying to swallow that slop, and I'm not about to put another bite of it in my mouth. All of that is communicated with the tone of our voice. Sociologists tell us that, at least in certain contexts, the tone of the voice carries seven times the meaning than the words themselves. This is not all the time, but sometimes. 
And so we have to think in terms of learning how to choose our words carefully. We have to think in terms of, and again, with our children especially, training them how to use the right kind of words, uh, to, to, to think biblically, to use biblical terms, to use gracious words and all of this. And then we have to teach them when the tone of their voice is not right to correct the tone of their voice, right? To communicate with the intonations of their message. And then there's nonverbal forms of communication, right? So as I'm standing up here, I'm communicating, you know, with my gestures, with my body language, with my face, all of this the Bible addresses as well. Now, again, sociologists tell us that sometimes the nonverbal communication com communicates more than the words and the tone of voice together. I, I want to emphasize that as Christians, we must be most focused on the words, but we cannot ignore these other things. So you've got the words, you've got the tone of voice, and you've got the nonverbal communication. Now, in the heart of anger, I talk about something called the gymnazo principle, um, which basically, the word gymnazo is the word from which we get gymnastics, gymnasium, and it means to basically to practice, to practice doing something again and again and again. So with small children, we encourage parents to help them choose the right words so they flub a lot and, and you correct them. And then you encourage them to say the words the right way. And so maybe they'll say the words the right way, but the tone of voice is not where it should be. And so you say, okay, honey, the words were better that time, but, you know, let's improve the tone in your voice. And you have them practice it again. And then when they get the tone of voice right, usually by this time they correct everything. But if not, then you maybe have to help them with the nonverbal communication. So uh, I was, um, I don't know, my mid-20s, I came home, early 20s maybe, I came home from college for the holidays, and um, my mom sits me down in a chair on the couch, she's sitting next to me, and I am um, kind of like this, and uh, she says to me, Louis, tell me what's going on in your life. And so I start explaining to her what's going on. And before I finish my first sentence, she stands up. She walks in front of me. She busts my arms apart. She busts my legs apart. I'm like in my mid-20s. She scoots me this way. She sits back down and says, now, Louis, tell me what's going on in your life. I, mean, I couldn't get away with not communicating. My mom would just make sure that I was a good communicator because it was that important to her. Words. Tone of voice, nonverbal communication. Now, the Bible does talk about lots of different forms of nonverbal communication, but the one form that we see most in Scripture, at least by my account, is the countenance, the, the face. I have a message I, I like to bring when I talk to women's groups. It's called, How to Improve Your Looks from the Inside Out. And what I do is I go through the Bible and I identify specific sins that the Bible says show up on your face. You say, why women's groups? Well, when a woman goes through puberty, she develops this subcutaneous layer of fat under her skin, right? And that sort of makes her curvy and it makes her skin soft and smooth and all of that. And so... You know, the fact of the matter is guys are kind of rough and tough and, you know, it doesn't affect us quite so much if our face is kind of, you know, affected by our sin. It does, but it's more noticeable on women. So what does the Bible say about 
the kind of sin that shows up on our face. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? You remember the story about Laban and uh, his father-in-law? Your father's countenance, he was bitter because he had been manipulating the cattle so that he got more and his father-in-law got less. The countenance of your father is not the same towards me as it was before. Lust not after her beauty in your heart, neither let her take you with her eyelids. Sensuality shows up. The Bible talks of rebellion in terms of being stiff-necked, people being stiff-necked. Guilt shows up on her face. Selfishness shows up on her face. And so the point is, now I'm not saying every time we have an act that it affects our face, but if we're characterologically struggling with a sin, one of these sins, it shows up on our face. You know, take bitterness, for example. I heard a true story of a guy who was giving a conference like this, a much bigger audience, and someone came up to him at the break and said, could you explain to me something? Could you help me figure something out? And he said, okay. She said, I just can't seem to, ha- to, to get close to people. It seems like they come up to me, and after just a few minutes, they, they're repulsed by me somehow, and they just kind of walk around me and, and, and just avoid me. And I, I don't understand. It really hurts when people do that. And he said to her, well, ma'am, I don't know, but um, I think it's your face. <laughs> and of course, she, she was stunned, and... He got her attention, and uh, he took a guess. He, he said, you know, I just met you, but your face tells me that you've been hurt by someone um, probably more than one time, and that you're having a hard time forgiving that person. Well, she broke down. I mean, he nailed her, and he was able to minister to her and help her deal with the resentment and the bitterness in her heart. But this stuff, man or woman, this stuff does show up on our face. Now, Where does wisdom reside? In our heart, right? A man's wisdom makes his face to shine and the harshness of his countenance to be changed. The show of their countenance doth witness against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. I mean, what's in your heart is going to show up not only in your words, it's going to show up in one way or another on your face, especially if it's a long-standing, characterological type of problem. Now, the good thing about it, at least temporarily, right, one smile covers a multitude of sins. When you smile, at least people will think, well, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to be nice, trying to be friendly, he's trying to work on his uh, disposition, Okay, now, we want to talk about some of the most common sinful forms of communication. Not an exhaustive list, but just a few. Interruption. Few things kill the free-flowing exchange of ideas like interruption. Whether it's in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a thought, When you interrupt someone before they finish, you're showing yourself to be unwise. You're you're violating several passages of Scripture. The Bible says in James, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. When you interrupt someone, you're not being uh, swift to hear. 
right? In Proverbs 18, 13, it says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, and that's what you do when you interrupt people often, it's folly and shame unto him. So not only is it inconsiderate to interrupt people, and that's another biblical principle. I mean, love has good manners, right? Love is not rude. Well, usually when you interrupt someone, it's considered impolite. It's considered rude. So, I mean, six ways to Sunday, it's usually not a good way. It's usually unbiblical to interrupt people. So not only is it inconsiderate, but it also communicates a know-it-all attitude that essentially says, I know where you're going with that, and you're wrong. Let me tell you how it really is. And young people, you really ought to let your parents finish their arguments before you make your case. And parents, when your kids are talking, you, you really need to hear them out, even if you disagree with them. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled, young people I've counseled, and I say, well, you, have you talked to your parents about it? No. Well, don't you think you should? No. Well, explain to me why not, because they're always right. They never admit that they're wrong. There's no use trying to talk to them because I'm always going to be wrong. They're always going to be right. The Bible says the wisdom from above, mom and dad, is reasonable, easily entreated. I'm kind of going afar here on this one, but it just came to mind. <clears throat> if I were to ask your kids, what kind of a fighting chance do they have to change your mind once you've made a decision? What would they say? Never. 2%. Are you reasonable? Are you easily entreated? Number two, inattentiveness. Melanie asks her father with her headphones snugly in place, may I go to the movies? While her father attempts to answer, Melanie is distracted by one of her favorite songs, which just at that moment had been playing on her new iPod. So she continues to listen to the music, singing along in her heart while pretending to be attentive. She smiles, she looks at her father straight in the eyes, nods politely as he continues to wax eloquently, but her mind is light years away. It's especially irksome to parents when their children do not pay attention. Perhaps it's because it's a form of rudeness. Perhaps, in effect, what you're saying is, you have, what you have to say doesn't concern me. It really isn't important. And by the way, neither are you. Another version of this happens when someone is beginning to speak to you or begins to speak, and you're already formulating an answer to what the person is saying, and you tune the other person out, and so you're not listening to them. So it's important for us to be attentive. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.2, A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in giving his own opinion. And when you're inattentive and you start talking, especially before the other person finishes, you're being a fool. You don't have... You're not interested in understanding the other person. And this goes both ways. This goes for parents to their kids, you know. Let your kids express themselves. And this goes for kids towards their parents. Listen to your parents. Weigh what they say. Again, listen. A fool has no delight in trying to understand the other person, but just in letting the other person hear their point of view. Now, The Bible has 
some interesting things to say about children being attentive to their parents. Most of you won't remember this, but years ago there was this E.F. Hutton commercial. Do you remember that? When E.F. Hutton speaks, what? Everybody listens. Well, that's the idea. Basically, the Bible says when your parents talk to you, especially when they're giving you instructions, you're supposed to stop, look, and listen. Actually, some of these verses, I'm going to read them to you. Says you're supposed to memorize what your parents say. I mean, see for yourself. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. These are all from Proverbs, by the way. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. Hear, O son, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ears to my saying. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Like, memorize them. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ears to my understanding. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Memorize them. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk. When you awaken, they will talk with you. My son, keep my words. What does that mean? Store them up in your heart. Keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. We're supposed to listen when our parents talk to us. Judging motives. In 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 5, it says this, Therefore, judge nothing before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the motives of the heart. If I do something wrong and you see it, you can approach me. You can say, Lou, I saw what you did, and brother, that was not right. If I say something that's wrong, you can confront me about it. But what you may not do, what you're not allowed to do, is to judge my motives. You can't say, Lou, I heard what you said, and I know why you did it. You only did it because. No, you're not allowed to do that. See, but I've been married to my husband for how many years? I kind of know him. I, I, I know my kid. I know what she's thinking. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. You can ask what the other person is thinking. You can ask for his motives. Could it be that the reason you said that is because you're angry at me? Right? And then if he says yes, okay. Then you can talk about the sinfulness of his motives. But you may not slam the gavel down in your mind or with your mouth and accuse the other person of having motives unless that person tells you. You know, as a counselor, I'm trained. We talk about nonverbal communication. So, you know, I've kind of trained myself and learned a little bit 
maybe quite a bit, about how to read people, read their faces. But I can't take it to the bank without verification. I've got to say, you seem to be upset about something. Or you seem confused. I take what I see and I've got to get them to verify what's in their heart based on what's on their face because I really don't know what they're thinking, what their motives are. Without asking them, I can't take these kind of superficial observations to the bank. Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah says, he will not judge according to the seeing of his eyes or the hearing of his ears, but with righteous judgment he will judge. God wants us to get under the surface and make sure we make judgments based on solid information, not on speculation. Blame shifting. The woman, the oldest trick in the book, right? The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me and I ate. Pride doesn't want to admit wrong, but looks for somebody else and something else to blame. And when we are confronted with our sin, we ought to own it. We ought to say, you know, just two words. You're right. Or forgive me. But no, we want to blame someone else or something else. We want to extenuate our guilt rather than taking the hit for it. And that's pride and that's not going to help. How many times have I been helping a couple or parent and child, you know, try to get an, an issue resolved and he blames her and she blames him and back and forth we go. Well, that's not going to solve the problem. When, uh, when my wife and I are having a conflict and we get into the blame game, the first one to recognize what's going on can put a stop to it. I might say, okay, look, you think it's my fault, I think it's your fault. I'll go first. I'll put my neck in the chopping block. You can tell me everything that you think I've done wrong, and I'll own it. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll confess it. I'll repent, whatever I have to do. But when I'm done, then I want to talk to you about what you did. So get the beam out of your own eye first so that you can see clearly to get the splinter out of your neighbor's eye is the big idea. Sweeping generalizations. You always do this. You never do that. You're the most whatever husband or wife or child I've ever met. What's wrong with those kinds of superfluative yeah, comments? What's wrong with sweeping generalizations? They're not true. Usually, right? It's certainly not true that you're who, your, your husband, your wife is always or never as bad as you say they are when you use such imprecise terminology. And this doesn't fly with husbands and it doesn't fly with teenagers. You, you do this to your husband, he's going to say, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember it's about a year and a half ago. I took the garbage to the curb without your prompting me to do it. You know, it's a tendency, you have a habit, a pattern, something like that, but when you use never or always, especially to a guy's logical mind, he's going to have a hard time, he's going to have a hard time not thinking that you're falsely accusing him. Of course, if you were humble and wise, he would understand that you're being a little bit hyperbolic and he wouldn't overreact, but nevertheless, you know, you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. Not communicating willingly. This is a big problem <clears throat> with a lot of men I counsel and lots of teenagers. 
One of the most common communication difficulties I encounter in the counseling office is that of people who are passive rather than active in the communication process. Let me get rid of this guy. That is, they sit passively by expecting those with whom they're supposed to be conversing to take all the initiative. Now, young people, I really want you to listen to this, please. Rather than volunteering all the necessary data for the dialogue, these individuals expect their counterparts to drag out of them all but the most basic information. This seems to be more common in men than in women, but the reluctance to communicate, especially on the part of a man, is not in keeping with the role of the husband who is supposed to be the initiator in the family. Now, young people, what about you and your folks? If they're followers of Christ, they have the responsibility to bring you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? That means they're supposed to teach you not only how to act like a Christian and, you know, talk like a Christian, but how to think like a Christian and be motivated like a Christian. That means they're going to have to ask you questions about your thinking and about your motives. And if you don't cooperate with them, you're keeping them from doing their job. They have to instruct you how to think, how to be motivated the right way. And when you say, I don't know, well, you don't want to talk about it, you don't give them the information they need to figure out what's right or wrong with your thinking, and you hinder them from doing their job, which is to bring you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Questions are the best way to get information. Right? Questions are to communication as food is to eating. Questions are to parenting, maybe, as food is to eating. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 and verse 5, counsel, plans, we're not sure what the Hebrew word means. Something in the heart of man is as deep waters. A wise man draws it out. And so parents have to draw out of your heart the information that they need to bring you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means they have to ask you questions. That means they have to ask you personal questions. That means if you don't cooperate, you're hindering them from doing what God wants you to do, and it probably means you're sinning because you're keeping them from doing their job. Interesting verse about opening up. It applies to children. Watch this. Paul says to the Corinthians, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained by your own affections. I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts to us. Pull the curtain back. It's the job of the children to open up and give their parents the information that they need to do their job in bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How am I doing for time? Okay. Disrespect. Disrespect. 
There's probably nothing that, you know, we don't want the verse in the Bible that says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. There's nothing that provokes parents to anger more than disrespect. And there are dozens of ways that teenagers can be disrespectful to their parents. So in the book, I make the point that it's usually pride and selfishness that generates disrespect because, you know, we think we're better or cooler or wiser or whatever than our parents. Now, why is it that kids are disrespectful to their parents? The Bible says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you regard your parents as more important than yourselves? Or do you think they're kind of antiquated and they don't know what they're talking about? They're not hip, they're not kind of with it, they're kind of outdated. Well, you're supposed to, even if you think that's true, you're supposed to regard them as more important than yourself. So, why are kids disrespectful to their parents? Well, here's some reasons. To divert attention away from what they're doing wrong. I know if I'm disrespectful, then I'll get the focus off what I did wrong and I'll have something else to give me a hard time about. Sometimes kids are disrespectful to their parents because their parents hurt them or they think their parents hurt them. And it's vengeance. It's getting them back. There's nothing I can do that will light mom up, to light dad up more than being disrespectful to, to him. He's hurt me. I'm going to hurt him back. Sometimes they do it to protest. They are protesting what decision their parents made or some other thing that their parents are doing that they disagree with. And so they employ disrespect to basically say, you're not doing what is right. It's not fair. You know, rather than protesting biblically and appealing to your parents and using gracious forms of communication, and by the way, being willing to take a no answer. The whole section in this book, by the way, of how to talk to yourself when you make an appeal, there's a chapter on how to appeal to your parents, and there's a, there's a part in that chapter where it talks about how to think when your parents won't give you what you want. It's sort of like, what do I tell myself in order to be ready to accept a no answer if I can't persuade my parents to give me what I want? Sometimes they're disrespectful because it's who I am. And I'm just going to be myself. Sometimes they're disrespectful to manipulate their parents. That is, they know that their disrespect lights up their parents and they're trying to use their parents' anger or whatever other sinful response they can evoke to neutralize what their parents want to do so that the parents will feel guilty and back off of their instructions. Sometimes they do it to complain. Sometimes they do it to test the limits. They're being disrespectful just to make sure that they know where the limits are. Sort of like last time I walked over that fence, that electric fence, I got zapped. Is, that, is the juice still on? Sometimes they do it to see who's the boss. Sometimes they do it to justify their contempt for their parents. And of course, there could be lots of other reasons. Sometimes there's no real ulterior motive. It's just what they've learned to do. They've been disrespectful for so long. It's just they open their mouth and disrespect comes out. You know, this disrespect in the heart just comes out. It's, it's, a, it's a habit. Why should I be respectful? Well, here are some reasons. To please and glorify God. 
to have a better quality life, that it may go well with you if you're on your father and your mother, that you may live long upon the earth, lengthen your life, to requite or repay your parents for the good things. How, many, how much time and effort and money have they invested in you? Well, you should repay them. You should be grateful to them for everything that they've done, the sacrifices that they've made for you. To build more humility and love in your life. To be a good example to your siblings and other people, maybe your friends. To prepare for marriage. You know, honoring your spouse is something that the husband is to do to wife and the wife is to do to the husband. We all know that the wife is to be respectful to her husband. It says that in Peter and Ephesians but we, we read over what it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, giving honor, respect, to the wife as if she were a weaker vessel. To be more gracious, to gain eternal rewards. Lots of other reasons why we should be motivated to be respectful to our parents. How am I disrespectful? By refusing to talk to my parents. By rolling my eyes at them. Don't you love it? Don't roll your eyes at me. I didn't roll my eyes at I'm looking you right in the eyes. Don't tell me you didn't roll your eyes at me. By raising my voice at them. By calling them names. By telling them no. By threatening them. By looking at them angrily. By withholding affection, by scoffing, mocking them, by talking back, by using biting sarcasm, by using profanity, by embarrassing them publicly. I'm going to give you an example of that tomorrow when we talk about bitterness. By slandering them to your friends, by putting them down, by ridiculing them. By being ungrateful for the many things they've done for you. By being wise in your own eyes. I mean, do you really think God has given you in 15 years more wisdom than he's given your mom and dad together in twice that much at least? By willingly disobeying them. By cursing them. By being rude and unmannerly. By refusing to be corrected. By interrupting them. By not being attentive. By walking away when they're talking to you by murmuring and complaining, by making them out to be ridiculous. All right. By asking for their opinion. Isn't that a novel one? Asking your parents' opinion for stuff. By using terms of endearment. By following their instructions. By using good manners. By seeking to spend time with them. By praying for them, by honoring them publicly, by quickly admitting when you are wrong, by offering to help them with their chores, by telephoning them if, or texting them if you're going to be home later than expected, by speaking to them in a warm, pleasant tone, by carefully choosing gracious words. By holding your tongue when you're too angry to speak graciously. By buying them or making them an unexpected gift of appreciation. 
by cheerfully accepting a no answer from them to one of your requests. By looking directly at them when they're speaking to you. How can I develop a more respectful attitude? Actually, um, in the book, I talk about different things that teens can do to improve their attitudes, but I want to cover these last two so we can have some Q&A. Lying. As I said before the break, probably the most foundational principle of biblical communication is truthfulness. You've got to tell the truth. When... And, I, and I've got a little booklet on deception. And in, in the booklet, I've identified 22 different kinds of lies told in the Bible. That's not 22 examples. That's 22 different kinds of deceptions in the Bible, some of which have more than one example. And after the book was published, I found three more. I mean, you could almost say tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek, the Bible is filled with lies because there are so many examples of different types of lies that people told. And most of the lies in the short term successfully duped their victims. But as Christians, we should put away falsehood and speak every man the truth with our neighbors. And when you're not honest, when you, and you can lie in lots of different ways, but you can break it down into two different categories. You can lie by falsifying information or you can lie by concealing information. We talked before about trust. We talked before about trust, right? When you struggle with lying and you have to earn back trust, you have to do the opposite of whatever you did to lose the trust by your lying. So if you habitually falsify information, you have to be sure that in the future, if you want to earn trust back, you give an accurate account of what happened when your parents ask you for information. Tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you conceal information, if you want to earn trust back, if that's been your pattern of lying by concealing information, you've got to do the opposite of that. You've got to volunteer information. Your parents ask me, well, what happened to school today? Well, I got to the bus stop at, you know, 7.03. At 7.05, the bus came. At 7.10, I got into this argument with George. And at 9 o'clock, you, you want to give them so much information, that they say, you know what? TMI. I believe you already. That's what you have to do, right? If the page is bent, and you want to straighten it out, just kind of making it go flush against the wall is not going to solve the problem. If you really want to straighten it out, what do you have to do? You have to bend it a little bit back in the other direction, and then it will straighten out. So that's the idea. Grumbling and disputing. You know, when you grumble and complain, it really shows that you are being disrespectful. One of the greatest indications of a person's ingratitude is the frequency with which he grumbles. God says you shouldn't grumble at all. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Of course, since God gave you the parents he did, you're also experiencing ungratefulness and discontentment. You're expressing ungratefulness and discontentment to him when you Grumble and dispute. I don't know why God gave me the parents he did, but he must have made a mistake. 
In what circumstances are you most likely to complain? When my parents don't buy me the things I want. When my parents limit the amount of time I can spend with friends. When my parents limit my entertainment options, music, videos, computer, etc. When my parents ask me questions about my friends. When my parents tell me no without sufficiently answering all of my questions. When my parents enforce my bedtime or curfew. When my parents make decisions involving, involving me without explaining their reasoning. And again, they should do that, but you shouldn't be disrespectful to them if they do that. Okay, well, we should probably stop here. Let's see what the time is. Yeah, okay. And now if I understand the schedule right, we're going to do Q&A, and that's for me? Okay. All right. So Q&A. And um, I guess we can start with Q&A about communication, and then we can go from there. Hi, my name is Anson. So what would be a, a, an example of the right way and maybe also a wrong way if you catch your child in a lie? Um, you know, the thing about it is there are um, lots of wrong ways and there's more than one way to skin a catfish. There's more than one way to ice a cake. You start at the side, you can start at the top. So you have, you have lots of uh, options. Why don't you give me a pretend scenario of the kind of lie that he was caught and then maybe I can be more specific for you. Like they're hiding activities at night, like not sleeping and doing something else. They're not supposed to be doing. Okay. And so, and so they, they're, they're... Hypothetically. They're, they're, I heard. <laughs> so, so they're, they're concealing information. Um, now, again, um, um, are you playing Sherlock Holmes or do you have the goods? Do you know? Oh, we have the goods. Okay. <laughs> 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 All right. So you heard. So... So the Bible says love believes the best. So our default position is uh, we believe the best about people unless there's evidence to the contrary. But when there's an incongruency between what somebody says and what, um, and what the evidence shows, then you have to take the evidence and present it to the person. And sometimes they really can uh, um, explain that there really was no lie involved. There was just a, a reason that things don't match. Um, but uh, if it's the other situation and uh, the, the person admits that it's a lie, then the issue is acknowledging, confessing, forsaking, but then it's the goal has got to be, now we're talking about a parent with a child, okay? The goal has got to be putting off falsehood and speaking the truth with your neighbor. So when I counsel people who lie, I might say to them, George, you've had a habit of lying and I know that you want to correct this. I want you to imagine what it's going to be like six months from now, a year from now, two years 
from now. When you walk down the, peop- the street and people say, there goes George, he's one of the most dependable, truthful, honest people I know. So the issue is confession, it's repentance, restitution, you know, where it, it's necessary. Um, and then, of course, if there's got to be uh, some kind of punishment, I'm big, honestly, in those situations for teenagers, and I even did it sometimes when they were preteens, but uh, I'll negotiate the, the punishment. I mean, I'll say, okay, so you realize it's wrong, yeah, you realize I have to punish you, yeah. Well, what do you think? What are your options? What do you think would be fair? And uh, sometimes they'll say something, and I'll say, no, that's probably too severe, and sometimes they'll say something, and say, uh-uh, that's too easy. You know? And so we'll negotiate it. Because again, I want to treat them like an adult as much as possible. So, you know, you present them with the evidence, you get them to acknowledge they've done wrong, you get them to seek forgiveness, to make restitution where possible, and then you, you determine the appropriate punishment, but that's not the important thing. You know, my counselees don't obey me. I, I'm sorry, when my counselees don't obey the Bible, I don't take them over my knee and spank them. I have to depend on teaching, conviction, correction, and discipline training in righteousness. So then together with the child, we try to come up with a, a plan to go from being a teller of lies to a teller of the truth. That's really the magic bullet. The magic bullet is not the discipline. The magic bullet comes when you sit down with the child and you teach him and show him how to put off the old man, how to be renewed in the spirit of his mind, and how to put on the new man. And that's a process. Okay? My name's Nathan. Um, uh, earlier, I think yesterday, you talked about uh, approaching reproof with gentleness. Mm-hmm. And um, but you also talked about people-pleasers having a tendency not to uh, confront sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, you've, you've talked about um, how like modeling humility uh, encourages humility, right? Right. Humility uh, begets humility, right? Right. And in the same way, I think uh, sometimes um, modeling openness and reproof uh, begets uh, the ability to feel comfortable reproving. You're talking about the part of the parents so if the parent needs um, to take the hit when the kids so, reprove him and well, be a model of. So I'm actually more thinking in a church setting. Oh. How do you encourage or how do you, um, yeah, how, how do you foster a culture of reproving sin within a church? So that's a good question. I, uh, I had the privilege of being at, um, at a church that was honestly probably one of the healthiest churches in the country for many years. And the people were so adept at admonishing each other and confronting each other with their sin because they were taught from the pulpit. They were taught by the counseling classes. You know, half the church came at least for counseling, and they learned these things. And so the church was just very adept at doing this. We had people, we had people um, in the church who had serious sin, and other people went to them, a la Matthew 18, confronted them, brought them in for counseling. They told 
there, we had a parish model, so everyone in the church had their own elder, and then the counselor, who's an elder. And so we had people dealing with serious, serious sin. Other people in the church found out about it and brought them into counseling or to the elders. And me and one other elder in several different cases were the only ones who knew about it. The elders never knew because the person repented before. Now, we may have generically said, look, we've got someone in this church who's unfaithful to his wife, but he's repentant, you know, that kind of thing. But our, our mantra was you keep the circle as small as you can, as long as you can, and if a person repents, it should, in most cases, stop it there. And so I think there are lots of ways to teach it, but I think the congregation has to understand that we have a responsibility to restore our brother. If anyone, this started out by the Galatians 6.1 verse, if anyone is overtaken by a fault, you who have the spirit, restore. The word restore was used in biblical times to speak of the setting of a bone or the mending of a fishing net. The big idea is you make someone useful again. When your arm is broken, it's not useful. When you, you have a big hole in your fishing net, it's not useful anymore. So the idea is you restore the brother or the sister to usefulness to a place where they can be used in the body again. And if you can do it one-on-one or two-on-one, you've won your brother, that's it. It's over in most cases. Now, if it's a severe sin, it's a scandalous sin. Obviously, a public confession may have to be made. But, you know, the point is you keep the circle as the offenses, the circle of people who know as small as you can, as long as you can. But it was really cool because it was happening, in, and I would hear about things secondhand and never even came to me because the people in the church were so committed to peacemaking, were so committed to confronting things. Now, um... Another thing is you have to model humility. You know, when I was an elder in this church for 11 years, and um, it was just a scary thought to, to have to be <clears throat> an example. And I thought about that. It's like, what am I supposed to be an example of? Am I supposed to be an example of somebody who's perfect? Well, that's not going to happen. I think the most important thing, there are other things, but I think the most important thing and this goes for parents too. I think the most important thing about being an example is I've got to be amongst, uh, above everything else, I've got to be an example, even as an elder, of someone who, when he's confronted with his sin, repents. That's the idea. And again, as parents, you, when our kids approach us and talk to us about our sin, we have to be easily entreated. We have to be reasonable. And if they have us dead to rights, we need to fess up and own it and ask their forgiveness and repent and commit ourselves to a different course of action. Does that answer your question? Good. Hi, my name is Kelly, and I have a question about um, thinking of your previous sermons on selfishness. So when you're counseling Christians like struggling with depression, mm-hmm. do you is your take to like first like call out their selfishness or how do you how do you usually address that boy that's a that's a that question requires a 20 minute answer <clears throat> um, people who are struggling with depression um, probably and this is not only people who struggle with depression um, but for lots of problems people need hope as much and sometimes more than they need help And so I will have to spend sometimes the first session or two doing little else or three, but asking questions to come up with a biblical diagnosis and giving them hope uh, that there's an answer to the problem. 
Now, when it comes to depression, one of the most effective ways to give them hope is to go through some of the non-organic causes of depression. Because most people think, well, I'm depressed. Maybe it's a chemical thing. You know, I, I, maybe I need to be on medication. And they never stop to consider what comes first, the sin or the chemical imbalance. I mean, every time you stub your toe, you have a chemical imbalance, right? You sit in an attack, you have a chemical imbalance. Now, you can take an aspirin or you can, you know, stand up and take the tack out of your bottom, right? And so what we do, what I typically do to give people hope is to go through the, some of the most common non-organic causes of depression, starting with anxiety. Half the people that come to me and are depressed, 40% of them at least, have a worry problem. And it's sort of like running around the block. You run around the block enough, sooner or later you're going to deplete your emotional energy when you worry all the time because God didn't intend you to worry 24-7. You're going to end up being emotionally exhausted or depressed. So the first thing I usually unpack for them is worry. The next thing is guilt. God didn't intend us to live with guilt for a long period of time. The next thing I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning is bitterness. A lot of times people are depressed because someone's hurt them and they they didn't know how to respond. They, they wouldn't forgive. Along with that, sometimes people are depressed because of grief. God flung a trial on them. They went through a painful trial. As a result, they lost something. Maybe they lost money. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they lost their health. Maybe they lost a loved one. They lost something, and then they responded inappropriately to the trial. And they were overcome by grief. Jesus tells the disciples in the book of John that he's going to be leaving them, and apparently they didn't like it. Half the time they didn't even understand what he was saying because he told them lots. But in this one case, he said, I've told you these things, and sorrow, grief, has filled your heart. Now, when we lose something, you know, we all walk around with a little bit of sorrow, Right? along with joy and happiness and peace, and we can focus on all of our responsibilities and other things. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had a whole lot more sorrow than we carry around, but he still was able to say, my joy I give to you, my peace I give to you. He still had love. He still was able to fulfill, it, fulfill his responsibilities in his ministries. But when sorrow fills your heart and chokes at everything else, you're in a bad way. And so I explained to them that that might be the cause of their depression. And there are other things I go through, for example, just any form of unbiblical thinking. So I go through the things, the non-organic reasons why people might be depressed, and just helping them for the first time, typically, understand, wow, it probably, it's, and I ask them, well, give, give them the percentages. How much of it is anxiety? 60%. How much of it is bitterness? 20%. How much of it is guilt? 15%. How much of it is grief? Ah, eh, not much grief, maybe 5%. You know, and that becomes my counseling agenda. But just helping them understand the non-organic things that could be contributing to their depression, whether they have a medical problem, a biological problem or not, gives them hope. So, you know, yes, you know, did I say you're depressed because you're selfish? No. But did I point out their sin in a way that gives them hope and helps them to realize, you know what? You know, think about it. Either I have a genetic predisposition to depression, I'm stuck with this for the rest of my life, or I have a, I have a chemical imbalance or something, I'll have to be on medicine for the rest of my life. But I mean, to think that 
It's just sin. And I don't want to minimize sin because sin is a very serious thing in the sight of God, but there's a cure for sin. Jesus Christ came to do away with our sin. And so even to help people see that they're sinning oftentimes gives them hopes, but it, hope, but it just depends on your presentation. You don't want to hit them over the head and say you're sinning because you're selfish. Stop being so selfish. Just learn to love God and love others. Take two scripture verses and call me in the morning. You know, that's not exactly the compassionate way to do it. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. So I have a question. You don't count. <laughs> so let's say, um, you know, uh, teens and uh, youth, uh, sometimes, you know, parents will do things and teens will point it out, you know, maybe the way... Like that do sinful things? The parents drive, you know, maybe they're speeding or maybe they're doing something at the grocery store or whatever, and the parents kind of just... Wait, 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 wait. Are they sinning or are they not sinning? They're sinning. Okay, the thank you. Student points that out. Yeah. But the parents just kind of blow it off or brush it off or tell them, no, you know, don't worry about that or whatever. So when they don't respond in a biblical way, what should a child do or a student do? What did Jesus say a person should do if you tell someone about their sin and they will not hear you? Well, you can go to the second step and bring someone ah, Oh, how about that? Who would be a good second step person? Maybe their brother or sister. Or another spouse, or so one time. One time, uh, I got in the habit of uh, staying up late at night, watching late night television. I had this really cool man cave in our first apartment. <clears throat> so Kim comes in one night and says, "Lou, you really need to come to bed." I said, "Ah, I'm not tired. Go to bed. I'll go. I'll come in a little while." And she says, "Honey, this is like the third or fourth night in a row that you've been staying up late." watching television, and I don't think you're thinking about your counselees. I think you're being selfish. Uh, I don't think you're giving your counselees your best because you're not getting enough sleep every night. And I knew she was right, and so I said, it's not a sin for me to watch television. She said, how about if we call Pastor Ed in the morning and tell him what you're doing and see if he thinks what you're doing is a sin? <laughs> I said, I'll be right there. So, you know, I, I mean, you know, you can try several times, but if your parents are believers, then yes, you know, you ought to be able to talk to them politely, respectfully. You can't do it with a disrespectful attitude. Um, and again, um, you know, and, and again, you know, you, it's not like you're necessarily going to say, you know, I'm going to the second level of Matthew 18. <laughs> but I mean, you could say, that, I really think what you're doing is wrong. Would you please talk to mom? Would you please talk to brother so-and-so? Would you please talk to elder so-and-so? Tell him what you did and tell him, I, tell him you, my son says I think I'm provoking him to anger by doing this. What, what, what do you think? So, yeah, I mean, that's the short biblical solution in many cases, not the only option. You know, maybe it's the nuclear option, but at some point if you make several attempts and you, he will not hear you, then you may have to consider getting somebody else involved. Good job. <laughs> I just made more work for you. All right, is there another question? Going once, going twice. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
all this really cool stuff on communication and conflict resolution. Again, Lord, we can't do this without your help. Our hearts are so wicked, deceitful above all things. Lord, we really need your grace. We need your wisdom. We really need each other, frankly, to, to help us uh, understand and apply these truths to our lives because we are blinded to them so often. And so I pray for each of us that we would remember the most important things uh, from this lecture and everything else we've learned um, and that we'd be patient with you, patient even with ourselves. And uh, most of all, Lord, that we would allow you to deal with the stuff in our heart that makes our communication so hard to listen to, so contentious, so unbiblical. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who covers our sins, who forgives us of our sins because we've put our trust in him, but who also gives us the supernatural desire to obey, to do the things that we couldn't do. Indeed, it is the Holy Spirit who makes us willing and makes us able to do your good pleasure. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.